listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and Leadership. Pastor, why do you do what you do? What's the rationale? What's the logic? What's the theologic? What's been the logic of your tradition? These are all questions that you may or may not have thought about. I expect in some form you've been thinking about them more deeply over the last couple of years than maybe before. What challenging and trying times can do is force us to reconsider our logic, our rationale, the why question. If you're in the midst of asking these questions, maybe exploring scripture or maybe exploring your tradition, maybe exploring your own experiences, today's guest is a great and helpful guide on the way to developing an answer. Today's guest is Dr. R. Robert Creech. Dr. Creech is the Hubert H. and Gladys S. Rayborn Professor of Pastoral Leadership and Director of Pastoral Ministries at Truett Theological Seminary at Baylor University. He's been on the podcast before talking about family systems and congregational leadership, and today he's talking about his book, Pastoral Theology in the Baptist Tradition. It's published by Baker Academic. And he's been a great person I've learned from. I've really enjoyed learning from Dr. Creech in my own reading and in conversations I've had with him. And one of the things that really impresses me about Dr. Creech is his conversational tone. This is a person who has studied scripture deeply, but also been deeply involved in the local church. He's been involved in studying and teaching New Testament, and he's also been involved in pastoral ministry. He knows what it's like to preach the whole of scripture and to lead the whole of a congregation. If you're asking questions of a pastoral theology, maybe you're even asking, well, why should I have a pastoral theology? Today's episode is for you. If you're not a pastor, I think that you'll find some wisdom here and hopefully some encouragement as to what role you play. In fact, an inexcusable role, one that can't be done away with. All people in the church have a missiological role. And today we're gonna talk about some of the rationale for that as well. Stay tuned for a word from our sponsor and then enjoy this episode. We are Wesley, and you belong here. I'm Gloria Zikiwe, and I am Wesley. My name is Chris, and guess what? I am Wesley. I'm Ryan Wagers, and I am Wesley. My name is Julius White, and I am Wesley. My name is Jen Peterson, and I am Wesley. We recognize this beautiful diversity that the Lord has called together that is Wesley. My name is Corey Merritt, and I am Wesley. I am Wayne Brown, and I am Wesley. I am Colleen Durr and I belong here. You belong here too, because we are Wesley. Welcome to the Wesley Seminary Podcast. Robert, it's great to have you with us. Good to be with you again. Pastoral Theology in the Baptist Tradition, Distinctives and Directions for the Contemporary Church. Before we came on, we were just discussing the book and how it really has such a conversational tone. It's, it's drawing resources from a Baptist tradition, but it's not meant to be only for Baptists, right? You're drawing on resources that really can be applied to the wider church, especially around this theme of pastoral theology. So I'd like to jump in just by asking you, what exactly is pastoral theology? Why is it needed? Why is it important? The short answer, I think, is that pastoral theology is biblical and historical and theological why behind our work as pastors. It's not about how to be a pastor, but about the underlying why behind how we function as pastors. Derek Tidball, who once upon a time was a Baptist, I think, has a, a short definition. As a, it's an interface between theology and doctrine on one hand, pastoral experience and care on the other. Theology informs our work, and our work informs the questions we ask theologically. 
in, in this book, I understand Baptist pastoral theology to be an effort to describe the practice of pastoral ministry by being informed by the Bible and biblical uh, Baptist theology and Baptist historical resources. So Baptist pastoral theology arises from questions like, what does the scripture teach about this subject? How have we Baptists formulated our teaching about the first centuries? What practices have we historically engaged in? How do our distinctive doctrines, such as priesthood of all believers or autonomy of local congregation or separation of church and state, how do these distinctives bear on our understanding of the work we do as pastors? Yes, why it's necessary. I think this reason is that a solid theology inoculates pastors and churches from somewhat from influences that are rooted in a very different set of values than those offered by Jesus and his kingdom. If we're not asking questions about how what we do as a response to biblical teaching and the wisdom of the historical community and our own theological commitments, if we're not asking those questions, more likely to become enchanted with political power or corporate mentality or personal agenda of a bit ambition. Uh, what you and I were talking about earlier, Eugerson's uh, description of religious shopkeepers and just trying to cater to consumers. Apart from a grounded pastoral theology, I think we lose sight of what God intends the to be and do. Comes to mind is a, a line from Karl Barth that uh, theology is meant to gird people up for death. And I'm thinking about some of my friends. I come from a Canadian context. They've just been through such a difficult time of pastoring mm. the last you know, 18 months, 20 months and sure. the shift and all that's gone into it. But I would say that that some of them have been really courageous to ask some questions about, well, what is a pastor and what what am I doing? Not in the immediately practical sense, but in the broadly practical sense, like what is this that I'm that I'm doing and why am I doing this? They really are asking theological questions of the pastorate. Yeah. And in many ways, there has been a season of dying, right? There's, there has been a season yeah. of, of death in ways that they've been leading, certainly how they've been leading. There's been a, a removal of some of the techniques and processes that they've been become accustomed to. And so I can think about a, a good pastoral theology is something that prepares people for the inevitable kind of perpetual deaths that happen to the pastor as contexts change, as practices change, as expectations change, as their parishioners change. And sometimes by literal death, their parishioners are changing or maybe by moving or whatever else that a good mm -hmm. pastoral theology can strengthen them for the whole lifespan of the pastor. I think the flip side of that is what if you don't do that? I mean, what if you don't have a solid, thoughtful pastoral theology? The tendency then is to allow your role to be defined by the congregation who has no pastoral theology to help you define that. So they just make demands as consumers or the culture around us defines us as a CEO or a therapist or, or some other role. The failure to be grounded biblically, historically, and doctrinal in what we're doing as pastors just leaves us wide open. There's a phrase I came across a long time ago, we become like stray dogs at a whistler's contest. I mean, we have no idea of our own about what it is we're doing and why. And so it's really important to think theologically. It's not an option for us, really, if we're going to do this work. There's an article in Christianity Today recently, Pastoral Narcissism, the Shadow Side of Ambition. And when you talk about the inoculation that is sometimes uh, needed, the very nature of pastoral ministry can sometimes lend itself to that shadow side of ambition because it can be fairly isolating and isolated work. There's a mysterious element to it. There's certainly an opportunity to recruit and to work with people 
who might be susceptible to a strong voice and a certain kind of leadership. And so a pastoral theology, I like what you said, it doesn't just gird the pastor up for death, but it, it can keep them from being one who's inflicting a kind of false death on people, right? A, a harmful activity, a harmful kind of leadership. But developing a pastoral theology is both an act of courage, but an also act of humility as well. It is. And it is to it's really submit ourselves uh, to something rather than to take initiative and, and form it and define it. And it is an act of humility, I think. The pastorate is such a dangerous place for so many. As you mentioned, a friend of mine is a therapist in a Christian counseling center who has a contract with a major mainline denomination to uh, do the MPI with their ordination candidates and interpret that personality inventory. And he told me one time that candidates for ordination in that denomination would score in the upper 99th percentile in terms of people pleasing. I think that's probably true across denominational lines. The pastorate's a place where you get those pats on the back and do that as long as you don't define clearly what you believe and what you will do and won't do. Yeah, but as long as you're in this role of pleasing people, that can go a long way if that's what you're in it for. Ambition, on the other hand, is the same thing. It's another place where you attract a certain group of people who will help you pursue your ambition for whatever it is. And it's a dangerous thing to do in many ways, danger to the soul. Theology is one of the ways I think that helps us keep from going down some of those darker paths. I like the word that you used. It's an act of submission. And whenever we're faithful to develop a theology of the pastor, the theology of pastoral ministry, and if we are intellectually honest, it is something that we are by necessity need to submit ourselves to. And we want to be submitted to the truth. But of course, some of the ways that we do that responsibly are by having sources that we trust and then accountability, both to keep us from going in the wrong direction one way or the other, as you pointed out. Now, in your book, you've developed from the Baptist tradition, which, as you said, involves both historical elements and scriptural elements. Talk to us about why both of these sources and supports are necessary in developing a pastoral theology. I suspect that seminary are familiar with the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Turns out that some besides those in the Wesleyan tradition use it also. And as you know, the phrase describes these principal factors that John Wesley believed illuminate the core of the Christian faith for the believer. Wesley didn't formulate that statement exactly. From what I understand, he built it on Anglican theological tradition, but he, he added this fourth emphasis uh, of experience. So the four quadrilateral or scripture, tradition, reason, experience. And Baptists, like Wesley's, consider scriptures the primary source and standard for our Christian faith and practice. It's not a buffet that you could choose one of those four to ground something in. It starts with scripture, but tradition is part of that quadrilateral. Tradition is the experience and witness and the development and growth of faith through these past centuries across nations, across cultures, across time. Somewhat foolish to, to try to think as if we were the first ones to think through this stuff. So a Baptist tradition, the Baptist voices of the past is one source of our faith and practice left outside scripture, but never equal in its authority. We ask one of our spiritual answers done to answer these questions. How have they practiced pastoral ministry? And, and when we turn, it doesn't mean we must do what they did, but it does mean that we let them speak and we listen respectfully. Uh, one of my favorite quotations about this subject is uh, from Yaroslav Pelikan, who was a church historian at Yale. And uh, he said, tradition is the living faith of dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. 
he added additionalism gives tradition such a bad name. Tradition is not a bad thing. It's what earned and wisdom that's been handed on, and it allows those who've gone before us to speak into our situation. It's important that we ask those questions, that we're not inventing this from nothing. And uh, it's not surprising life that our Baptist ancestors don't speak with voice on a number of issues. So we get to listen to various opinions uh, when we call on them. Uh, I think one of the issues with many of the so-called independent churches is that they have no memory, they have no tradition. Their theology and their pastoral theology outside of a stream of tradition, outside a community of faith. And I think that leads to be more likely that they are going to be shaped by cultural norms and values, such as the business world or the corporate world. It really matters, I think, that whether our tradition is Calvinistic or Wesleyan or Anglican or Baptist or Mennonite or... I think that it's important that we do our theology in that context and listen. Uh, we can also listen to the wider voice of the Christian community over years and contribute our voice to that. But it's not something we do in a corner. It's not something we do that every generation starts out new uh, with a Bible and says, let's figure out what our theology is. That's my humble and accurate opinion about that. I appreciate the emphasis on the, on the multiple voices and finding ways that we listen to one another. And there's always a couple of errors that it seems when people are are coming of age theologically, and one is just to accept uncritically what one's beliefs are, and the other is to scorn uncritically what one's beliefs are, as though since somebody gave it to me, it must be true, is the same error as since somebody else gave it to me, it must be false. And so and we're back to humility again, aren't yeah. we? I mean, humbly listen, that doesn't mean we have to accept what our spiritual ancestors said about a particular issue. But we do listen to them and we respect them. And that's what we do every time we open commentaries when we're studying the Bible. We're listening to somebody, some other voice somewhere else, sometimes much older than ours, and, and housing the text that we're looking at. Yeah, it, it's an act of humility to crack open a commentary or to listen, you know, read a history book at an old confession of faith. G.K. Chesterton described that willingness to learn from history really as democracy. He, he made mm -hmm. the argument that if people's opinions matter, then they don't just stop mattering once they die. And I was kind of reflecting on that with social media. You know, we have a number of tools that make it so that just because one is alive, that one's opinion now matters because it can go to anybody and everybody. But it shouldn't be the case that just because one is dead, their opinion shouldn't matter. The opinion to take, the, the approach to something is not necessarily altered by one's being alive or one's being dead. And it really is to our detriment whenever we just necessarily reject a tradition or like we've been saying, if we uncritically accept, accept it and simply promote it in spite of what might be weaknesses that we could ascertain with a bit, yeah. of, a bit of reflection. Hebrews 11 the sort of great cloud of witnesses sort of has a voice here. It's the communion of saints extends beyond the grave. For God to have raised up people at a time and used them in their time to speak truth and to make decisions around, you know, the issue of their day. And then just because they died didn't pay no more attention to them seems foolish. I mean, they are, this is a, at any given time, like right at this moment, we, the church, have more resources than the church has ever had you know, 100 years from now, those people will have more resources than the church has ever had, because there have been voices, people who've lived their lives faithfully to Christ, whose words are recorded, whose actions are recorded, and can continue to be learned. Maybe one of the places that this conversation becomes so important, both balancing out scripture and tradition, 
thinking about accountability is the subject of ordination. You've got a you've got a great line that you quote from Robert Baker in the book where you say at least one statement may be made about the Baptist view of ordination without any possibility of successful contradiction, and that is this: Baptists anywhere in the world have never totally agreed on the question of ordination, a practice that has from a number of different traditions different riches, right? Different insights. And you you trace in the book elements from scripture where it comes from, and yet you say this is probably a question that's best explored historically, right? How it has emerged out of the local church. And the reason I, I brought it up was it made me think about how ordination can be an act of accountability. I'm thinking about how some in the early church refused ordination precisely because of the weight that it was given to them. They would sometimes only receive ordination as a pact with somebody else who would receive ordination with them at the same time, and how that can be something that we ground historically. We, we certainly have elements of it from scripture uh, with the laying on of hands and the setting aside of the of the Levites. Right? We have elements of it sprinkled through scripture, but it is a practice that is better considered historically and where it comes from in the early church and how it's practiced. But even then, of course, we want to make corrections and see what were some of the trajectories that emerged that that were unhelpful, especially of kind of the creating the two tiers of clergy and laity, which I think is something that our contemporary church is really wrestling with and needs to account for. I'm an ordained person, uh, and all the churches that I've been part of have practiced ordination. But I, I'm somewhat skeptical as a Baptist for a couple of reasons. One is, if the, the sacrament of orders had not already been in Catholic church, I'm not sure we would have chosen that language, maybe even the exact practice that we now regard as ordination if all we had was a Bible to go on. I think what we've done is we've developed a practice, maybe for very practical reasons that are good ones. And then we went back to the Bible to find justification for it. I don't, we started with scripture and said we must ordain because scripture says this. I think it is we ordain. Where do we find something like that in scripture? And that's, you know, that's backwards for me. And it, it also has, uh, as you mentioned, it, it runs counter to some of our Baptist confessions of the priesthood of all believers and some other things. Is It's hard to tease out what laying on of hands in ordination does and doesn't do in the, in the congregational life. And it, if I had an easy answer to that, I'd have written a second book. But I, have, uh, I still wrestle with that question. I think it's uh, one that is uh, going to be with us for a while in our tradition. Yeah, Hendrik Kramer makes the point that it is one of those accidents of history that we simply aren't going to get away from. And so we kind of have to manage it out until the, the institutionalism, so to speak, is no longer needed. So he's, he's very much of this practical approach that, okay, we have it. There are some unfortunate consequences of it. And his, his book, A Theology of the Lady, he's really emphasizing how can those who are ordained just work at raising the, the level of responsibility, the level of, of right. mission, the expectations that the laity have for themselves. And, and he's grounding it missiologically. All right. That, that, I, and I think that's, I think that's good. It's, it's a thing that is easily, again, there, there are dishes on both sides of the road to fall off in on that mm -hmm. of clearly that has, and, and does need to set aside men and women for a role, a unique role of leadership in the congregation's life, the practice of doing that, you know, makes perfect sense. It's, I think the thing that prickles me just a little bit is I don't, I don't feel a need to have to have a chapter and verse on it to justify it's there being there. I mean, it makes all kind of sense in Baptist life, for example, where you are 
congregations are autonomous. And the fact that Hibbard Memorial Baptist Church ordained me in 19, what was that, 79, and I have an ordination certificate from a Baptist church, then when I go to another church and resume says I was ordained there, they know that a church of similar faith and practice has examined me and found me someone that they, they trusted to order to ministry. And so it, it, it's that practical way of, you know, it's kind of like a union card in somewhere or another. It just says, we've checked this person out and we believe that they are called to ministry and have gifts for ministry and have character with that. And so that's a useful, practical purpose. But I, it's really hard to find ways of grounding our actual practices of ordination, what we actually do when we ordain someone, of grounding that biblically. And I don't think we should try. Is what I guess what I'm arguing yeah. is we, we stretch the scripture a little bit when we try to say, well, no, what we're doing is biblical. Well, what we're doing is what we're doing. And maybe the Bible can inform how we can do it better, maybe. But it's a tricky one for me. One of the reasons it's tricky, and you go into this in the book, I want to use it to lead into my next question, is if you're looking at ordination in terms of the priesthood of the Levites, then you also have the work of the whole church as being as being set aside as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in the New Testament. And of course, right. the priests in the Old Testament were all males, but now in the church, we have men and women, we have male and female who are engaging in leadership. And so I'm going to take a little bit of time to kind of frame this next question, but I know some of the listeners would be really interested in how you approach the question of women in ministry from you personally, but then within a Baptist tradition. You've got a whole chapter on women in ministry, and you launch into the chapter, I think is a really helpful way with a conciliatory tone. You affirm that people of good faith and keen mind and worn out Bibles can come to different conclusions on the question, should women be in leadership in the church. And so you're, but you also have a position where you affirm and bring evidence for both biblically and historically for women in ministry. And you argue that the, the presence of women in leadership throughout the Bible and in the work of Christ to bring all people into God, to make this, as I said before, a kingdom of priests is evidence for women in leadership. I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit more about how you came to this conclusion. First, to be perfectly honest, the historical side of this, you know, there are places in the timeline of Baptist history where women have played roles in uh, leadership in, uh, you know, as pastors of churches and evangelists and such. That's not the dominant story in Baptist history. I really freely that those are exceptions to what has been the norm. But to me, the biblical evidence weighs pretty heavily in favor of women playing significant roles in the people of God, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, despite the fact those cultures were even more patriarchal than ours, and that's saying something. In those extreme patriarchal cultures, Old and New Testament, women played some significant roles among God's people. That part of the story is the countercultural nature of the kingdom. When the Bible speaks in line with its own culture, as it does at time about women, when Paul urges women to cover their heads in worship or violence and in certain contexts, being told they cannot teach a man. When, when the Bible speaks in line with its culture, I don't know that it's to uh, be definitive that those injunctions were intended to be universal for God's people through the ages. When the Bible speaks in line with its culture, I think we have to wrestle with what would be said now in a different time in a different culture. But when the Bible speaks contrary to its culture of its time, I think 
that's pretty good evidence that we're dealing with something that is rather universal principle. For example, in the Ten Commandments, the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. That's a position that's taken in ancient times among the people of God, and it is counter to the culture. You, don't actually, you actually don't need a commandment like that if people weren't you know, devaluing marriage or violating marriage in one way or another. And so that would seem to me to be a universal kind of principle that says no matter which culture you're in, marriage has to have a degree of sanctity to it among the people of God. When we listen to the, the testimony, biblical witness about women, at times contradicts its culture. When women act in ways that in that patriarchal culture were not normal, that would be contrary to culture. Or when we have Galatians 3.28, Jesus, there's neither you nor Greek, bond or free, male nor female. You have three countercultural statements that the church is a place where racial ethnic background does not matter. It is a place where uh, slave and free are together and where male and female, where that distinction is not taken into account. We're one in Christ Jesus. And those are countercultural statements. And so for me, I, I think. I the countercultural statements as predominant over the, the statements where, yeah, that fits with the culture. And maybe Paul or whomever is encouraged people to conform to their culture in a way for reasons that we may or may not, not be able to discern. But when he speaks counterculturally about the nature of women and the, the nature of, uh, well, well, take the example of slavery. Paul worked on the Jew or Greek dimension hard during his life and ministry. It was finding Gentiles acceptance church and the unity of the, the Jewish and Gentile branches of the church. That was a big deal for him. And I mean, he went to prison on account of that. Forgive him for not having enough life or time to work on the slavery issue or the, the women's issue. But he did lay out a principle that eventually gets played out. He tells slaves to submit to their masters and but he implies a countercultural thing in his letter to Lehman and in Galatians 3.8. So just because there are many statements in Scripture affirming slavery in one way or another, that is in line with same culture. But here are these countercultural statements, as in Galatians 3.28 and Philemon. And I think the same thing can be said for the role of women is that Paul didn't have time to take all that on, but his practice was that women have roles to play in the church's uh, leadership roles. And he affirms in Galatians 3.28 that there's male and female is not a distinction that applies in the church uh, in the way that it does in its culture. That's, for me, fairly convincing biblical theology. Thank you so much, Dr. Creech, for coming on the Western Seminary podcast and sharing your perspective with us. Thank you, friends, for tuning in. You make conversations like this possible. If you found this to be a helpful episode, please like and subscribe, share this episode around on your various social media platforms. The Wesley Seminary podcast exists to introduce topics and resources for fruitful ministry. I trust we've done just that today. Thanks so much, Connor, for making the Wesley Seminary podcast helpful with your production work as well. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary. 